Our scripture today is taken from the book of Acts, chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The word of the Lord. Have you ever noticed, you probably have noticed this, that as social groups expand and grow, whether it's a family or a community or a city, a society, even the workplace, as a group begins to grow, uh, potential for conflict grows along with it as well. You ever notice that? And not only relational and personal conflicts between individuals, but also material conflicts, substantive con- conflicts. What I mean by material conflicts is people begin to uh, disagree over how things should be done, how things should be run. Uh, sometimes organizations develop bottlenecks of, of inefficiency uh, where there's a problem and, 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 and that bottleneck, it, it stifles healthy growth. And, and it frustrates people. And, and after people are frustrated long enough, they get bitter and they get angry. So you have personal conflicts and material conflicts as organizations grow. The potential for that conflict increases. Uh, case in point is my own family. Becky and I, when we were married, uh, we only had to share. There were two of us. We just had to share one bathroom with one shower. You know, one bathroom and one shower uh, among two people. That's easy. Right? Almost 19 years later, uh, we have two bathrooms with showering capacity in our house, but we have eight people. So our showering capacity has doubled, but our population has quadrupled. Okay? Problem. Conflict. And so we now have, uh, between the hours of 6 and 8 a.m., every day of the week, uh, a, a, a problem with space and time and water, okay? Uh, and we have bottlenecks. And so as our family has grown, the hours of 6 to 8 a.m. every morning have become more inflicted with conflict of a material nature. But, but conflict over time and water and space, it, it degenerates into personal conflicts where people are angry and frustrated with each other, at least until the school bus comes, maybe for the rest of the day. So along with organizational growth comes the potential for more conflict. 
And the church isn't immune to that reality. Our church will not be immune to that reality as we grow, as we expand in number and, and in purpose in our community and in Westminster and in Carroll County and, and, and in ministries that we serve in other places. Growth brings along with it opportunities for conflict. Now, we're back into the book of Acts. We took a break during Advent season, but we're back into Acts. We're at Acts chapter 6 today, and we're discovering in the Acts series how the Holy Spirit of God gave birth to Christianity and to the church 2,000 years ago, and what insight and wisdom and practical advice we can pull out of the very careful historian Luke's perspective as we look through his account in Acts. And Luke records that as the church expanded, it had growing pains right there in the early days in Jerusalem. The church had its own share of growing pains, but the early church, Luke tells us in Acts chapter 6, responded to the growing pains very well. And that made all the difference. And actually, in order to grow well outwardly as a Christian community, we we have to grow well inwardly. If we're going to grow well and expand well outwardly, we must mature well inwardly. And I want to apply that specifically to the area of mercy, practical mercy ministry, because that's what Luke is doing in Acts chapter 6. That was the situation. Now, mercy can mean simply God's kindness to you and not giving you the judgment that you deserve. There's also a practical sense of mercy throughout Scripture, and that's what Luke is really getting at in today's passage. And I want to give you, uh, I think, a helpful definition for mercy, and it comes from Randy Neighbors, who is a Presbyterian pastor in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And, and Randy, uh, Randy is just seen as a respected person when it comes to practical mercy ministry and, and how to develop that as a church and how to nurture Uh, congregations, worshiping Christian congregations who are multi-ethnic and multi-racial. And in his book called Merciful, Randy Neighbor says, mercy is compassion towards those who are in need, resulting in action to alleviate that need through acts of charity leading towards self-sustainment. Now, that's a pretty holistic definition of what mercy is, and it goes beyond what we're going to discover in, in Acts chapter 6 today, but I think it's a great foundation. Mercy is compassion towards those who are in need, resulting in action that alleviates that need through acts of charity leading towards self-sustainment. The Old Testament urged the ancient Jews to do good, to seek justice, to correct oppression to bring justice to the fatherless, to plead the widow's cause. I'm quoting Isaiah chapter 1 there. The reason the ancient Jews were commanded to do good was because God did good. Psalm 146 says, The Lord watches over the alien and sustains the fatherless and the widow. So the early Christians, because the first Christians were Jews... The early, the early church adopted the Old Testament mentality of God's kindness. In passages like James chapter 1, where the apostle said, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. 
and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So to put it simply, the ministry of mercy from a Christian perspective is relieving the burdens of suffering people. Mercy is a ministry in which God's people gather together and through administration and generosity relieve the needs of suffering people. Relieve the burdens of suffering people, I'm sorry. And that biblical mindset was around thousands of years before our contemporary social programs in our own society. If you're not a Christian, uh, but you care very much about social action and social justice, and you wonder where those ideas come from, they do not come, uh, they don't come from a secular worldview. Uh, Those ideas, uh, the best that the world has seen with hospitals and missions and, and help to the needy, social justice, and mercy ministry, it all comes from Christianity. And it all comes from the ancient scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament. That's where it starts. So today, I want to talk to you about the need for mercy and the response of mercy and the reason for mercy. The need for mercy among us in the church and in our community and in the world around us. And, and how to respond in mercy to those needs. And then finally, why even bother? What is the point of mercy? And why, why do Christians and why does Christianity talk about mercy? So the need for mercy, um, the response of mercy, and then finally, the reason for mercy. Now, the need for mercy, as Luke explains in Acts chapter 6, it arose because the church was growing rapidly wasn't it and you have jews now again the first christians were jews you have jews from different languages though and from competing cultures all integrated in this early church as luke describes them you have the hellenists and you have the hebrews and what did that mean it was a matter of language and particularly culture The Hellenists is what the ESV translation says. The NIV does something very helpful. The NIV calls the Hellenists Grecian Jews. Grecian Jews and Hebraic Jews is how the NIV puts it. And, And the Grecian Jews, the Hellenists, they complained that their own widows were being neglected by the Hebraic Jews as the faith community was uh taking care of the widows. Because back in those days, widows didn't benefit from Social Security. And widows weren't living off of their late husband's pension plans. Uh, Widows were helpless if they didn't have children uh, or a family to take care of them. Uh, And so uh, God said to his people in the Old Testament, you got to look out for people who can't look out for themselves. Orphans, aliens, you know, refugees living amongst you, and widows. So, the, the Grecian Jews complain that, that um, the Hebraic establishment was neglecting their widows. Okay? Now, Hellenized Jews, they, they are Jews. They were born Jews, but, but they grew up in, uh, they weren't from Palestine. Okay? These are Jews that grew up in part of the world that was Hellenized, meaning speaking Greek and culturally Greek from the days of Alexander the Great. Right? That the, the Greek influence in the eastern half of the Roman Empire was still very strong. So that if you were a Jew, but you weren't born and raised in Palestine, you spoke Greek and you were culturally Greek. 
Now, the Hebraic Jews, um, the Hebrews, as, as Luke uh, calls them here, they're the majority culture. They're the Jews born and raised in Palestine, in Jerusalem, in Judea, or just outside. They spoke Aramaic, and they were culturally Hebraic. So you have competing cultures. There's animosity throughout the centuries over these cultures. Okay? Even though they're all Jews and they worship the God of Israel, there's competition culturally among them, and they speak different languages. So in verse 1, the Hellenists complain uh, against the Hebrews. And the word for complain in the Greek is the same word in the Greek Old Testament for grumbling. Remember in Exodus chapter 16, when the Israelites grumbled against God because they didn't have any water. Well, here Luke is telling us that, that the Greek-speaking Jews were complaining against the Hebraic Jews because their own widows were being neglected. So what Luke is, is really showing us here is you have a material conflict that is quickly digressing into a personal conflict. There's an organizational, there's a cultural problem for reasons we don't know. Luke doesn't explain. But what we see now is that uh, people are getting frustrated. And uh, I'll talk about Randy Neighbors again. I, I once attended a, a seminar that Randy gave, and he called it a crash course in mercy ministry. And he brought up Acts chapter 6, and he said, when you look at the problem the church was facing, it was, four, it was faceted, it was, four, it was a four-faceted problem. He said the church had a fourfold problem. They had a poverty problem, a growth problem, an administrative problem, and a cultural problem. He said the church had a poverty problem here. They had widows who were going hungry, uh, despite the Old Testament command to take care of them. You had a group of widows going hungry because you had a growth problem. The church was exploding. Luke tells us in Acts chapter 2 that on one day, 3,000 people became Christians and, and were added to their number. Neighbors said, there's also an administrative problem here because the apostles can't handle it all. They, and they say that. They say to everybody, we, we can't do all of this. All right? We're too busy leading the church and teaching the gospel and going to prison. So somebody else is going to have to step up and attend to this ministry. In the original language, they use, the, the, use, the, the word the apostles use uh, when they say, um, we can't spend our time um, serving tables. Because that's literally what they're doing. They're, they're providing a food service. The word for serving there is the same word they use for the ministry of the word later on. It's the same word. So the apostles saw it as there's a ministry of the word and we have to stay true to that. And there's a ministry of mercy. And that's what we have to delegate for the ministry of mercy. Now, um, so there's a poverty problem, a growth problem, an administrative problem. And the neighbors said there's an ethnic problem. There's a cultural problem because the people who were being overlooked, the NIV uses the word overlooked instead of neglected. But the people who were being overlooked were being overlooked because they were culturally different. They weren't part of the majority culture. They, they were, the majority culture took things for granted. And so the Grecian widows were overlooked. And neighbors said, you know, even if, even if you unintentionally overlook a need, it's still an injustice. 
If you overlook somebody who is hurting, and they are hurting because you have neglected to see their need, it's still an injustice. So, you know, pardon the expression, it's a real cluster cuss of a problem, okay? Look at what you have. You have a synthesis of a population growth, ethnic diversity, poverty, and administrative deficiency. All at once. Population growth, poverty, ethnic diversity, and administrative deficiency. And it's all boiling up and and producing this need that is threatening the early church. We've seen, we've seen spiritual warfare um, from the outside, right? The apostles are persecuted and, and they're, they're put in prison. Well, well, here is an internal threat, something right inside that can eat them alive if they don't address it. Now, I want to ask you a question. I want to open it up right now. In our day, right here in our community and in our life, who are the people who are overlooked? Maybe it's not widows in our case. Maybe it is. Middle-class widows in America typically are relying on um, uh, their deceased husband's pensions. Maybe they've worked for years and they have Social Security. Maybe they're young enough that they can go back to work. So maybe it's not widows, but who are the people in our society and in our experience who tend to go overlooked? What do you think, Annie? The mentally ill, yeah. Easy, yes, very easy to overlook the mentally ill. Yeah. The homeless, and, and they're here. The mentally ill and the homeless, if you just spend some time on Main Street, they're here. Who else? Uh, fatherless or motherless kids. Orphans, yeah. Yeah, kids who, kids who don't have parents or, or, or guardians who love them and are, and are nurturing them are overlooked. Refugees and immigrants worldwide are overlooked. I just found out uh, from a pastor um, in our own presbytery um, who is right now uh, preaching in the Dundalk area. He said that right now um, their church in Dundalk is seeing an explosion of uh, Congolese uh, refugees um, in their church because the government is sending um, refugees from the Congo um, who, are, who end up in Maryland, they're sending them all to Dundalk. And so there are 20 uh, French-speaking and Swahili-speaking Congolese refugees in one of our churches in Dundalk, and only one person in their congregation speaks French. And if they're not prayerful and careful, and if they don't ask God for wisdom and led by the Holy Spirit, those 20 Congolese refugees are going to be overlooked. There was another hand. human slaves, and didn't you speak a few uh, months ago, Jan, on the plight of, of human slaves around the world? Yeah. Some, peop- so, some of us overlook the needs of people we see and know, uh, but there are so many needs out there that we're not even aware of. Yeah. Any other ideas? Yeah. Absolutely. And, and, and isn't, that, isn't that what we see in, in these seven verses? That, that the ethnic minority, now they're all worshiping the same God. They all have the same religion. They're all Jews who have accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and are now the first Christians. But linguistically and culturally, they're different, right? And, and, and the, the cultural minority is being overlooked. Yeah. Really good ideas. Yeah, one more. Uh, illegal immigrants. 
illegal immigrants are overlooked. Yeah, not just legal immigrants, but illegal immigrants. And, and you know, and, and of, of course, I'm not going to get political, but regardless of how people get to the country once they're here, um, I'm not the president, I'm not a congressman, I'm not a police officer. Um, I happen to be a pastor, but I happen to be a Christian. So regardless of how somebody comes into my community, now they're here. And um, how do I interact with them? The Old Testament said God cares about the stranger living in your midst. And he didn't say, I don't only care for the stranger as long as he got here through a legal pathway. It's the government's job to figure out how they should and should not get here. But once they're here as a Christian, how do we how do we respond to strangers around us? Right. Uh, It's easy to, to, to neglect people who are here illegally. And sometimes we even get frustrated. Uh, And we don't know what's going on in Acts chapter six, but I'm sure there are a reason for animosity that led to the injustice. Uh, Wow. You guys have a lot of thoughts um, on this issue. And uh, thanks for sharing them with us. Now, how the church here responded to the need, how the church responded in mercy was a beautiful thing. Now, watch what they did. They selected men from the minority culture to lead them in formulating a solution. The seven men mentioned in verse 5 have Greek names. Scholars pretty much agree on this, mostly. What Luke doesn't explicitly say is, hey, these seven guys are Greek, were Greek-speaking Jews from other parts of the world. He doesn't say that, but look at the context. We're talking about uh, a discrepancy and an injustice because Greek people were being overlooked. And lo and behold, the seven men selected to lead a solution to the problem have Greek names. Actually, one of them was, wasn't even a Jew. One of them was a gent- the proselyte. Okay, um, where'd he go? Nicholas the proselyte. That, that means he, he was born a Gentile and at some point in his life, he converted to Judaism. And now he's a Christian. So he wasn't even Jewish. Uh, And they gave him the role. So context says they found a solution that was fitting to the problem. In order to succeed with a situation like that, they had to find leaders who knew the language and knew the culture of the people who were being overlooked. And who had a good reputation in that subculture. And who had a good reputation in the majority culture as well. And so what did the apostles advise the community to do? In verse 3, they selected, and I'm quoting, men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom. Now, how often you think of his, think throughout history and think in our own day, how often do we see that happen when the majority culture entrusts real responsibility and even power to the minority culture to resolve issues? How often do we really see the, the power structures, you know, whether it's your family or your school system or where you work or your community or in government, how often do you see the power, the, the authority, the, the, the ruling class saying, we're going to open this up and give real responsibility to representatives from the communities who are suffering, who are hurting, to help resolve the problem. But they did it. They did it 2,000 years ago. They did it with men who would follow God's wisdom rather than trust in their own biases. That's why the apostles say, find seven guys who have good reputations, who are not only full of wisdom, but what? 
full of the Holy Spirit because they needed God's wisdom to resolve an issue like this, not their own. It was too complex. It was too personal. It was a real threat. And uh, some scholars believe it was actually, uh, it was actually a satanic threat, that, that it was a cultural problem, but, but in reality, it was another spiritual attack on the early church. Uh, you know, in our own denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America is historically a white majority church. It just is. Uh, but what we are beginning to see on, at higher levels in our denomination is we are seeing important roles, whether they're preaching roles or whether they're administrative roles, being given to African-American pastors and Asian-American pastors. If you look at the schedule for our um, General Assembly, uh, this June, uh, the three uh, keynote preachers for, for the week are um, a Caucasian-American pastor, an African-American pastor, and an Asian-American pastor. This is a practical way of dealing with the cultural tensions we're seeing in American society right now, and even within religion and even within our church. A practical step in the right direction. Um, and what, it, what this really, and this is just one example, okay? But what it really accomplishes is it's a, it's a practical illustration of what the Apostle Paul said to the Philippian church in Philippians chapter 2. Do nothing from, Paul said, here is how you achieve unity in the church. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And the result of this was, what does Luke tell us in verse 7? More growth. The church continues to explode in number. It even says uh, that many of the priests became Christians. So now you have people from the established religious clergy saying, hey... This is where it's at. This group of people talking about Jesus of Nazareth and following him, they, they're reflecting the truth of the Old Testament. They're, reflect, they're not only preaching about the mercy of God, they're living out according to the mercy of God. They're practicing the mercy of God. And Luke says a number of priests became obedient to the faith. The gospel was advancing because their mercy had become a witness. So now it's, just an inter now it's not just internal mercy, now it's external witness. The world, the community is starting to see. Because the words the apostles were preaching by the ministry of the gospel was now being implemented, was being illustrated, was being backed up by the ministry of mercy. So that their actions were reflecting the words that they were speaking. And it's all because they were led by the Holy Spirit. They asked God's spirit to lead them and they found men who were filled with God's spirit and would trust in God's wisdom instead of in their own preferences. Now, do you allow your own preference and your own bias? Do you allow your own preference and bias to guide you in conflict? Is a family conflict, marital conflict, is something at work? Or whatever it may be, a conflict in your church. Do you allow your own bias or your own preference to guide you in how you respond to the problem? Because let's face it, we, we tend to protect our own interests. In conflict, we, te we tend to protect the interests of our subgroup. 
of our subculture, of our people or our kind. We want to protect what we know is what we feel is good. And, and I'm going to call that like a social nearsightedness, okay? Which I think is what is going on here with the widows. Is that the people who could do something about the problem were nearsighted to their own perspective and their own needs and their own traditions and way of doing things and they couldn't see far enough out of their own perspective to help. So are you nearsighted against the needs of other people? Are you nearsighted to your own interests and unable to see theirs? Now, on a person-to-person level, when we're nearsighted in this way, it, it hurts our friendships, doesn't it? It affects our marriages and our relationship with, with our children or our, our parents or our siblings. On a personal level, it, it gets us into trouble at work. Sometimes we, we don't do well in our job because we are very nearsighted toward the people around us. But when this dynamic takes place on a group-to-group level, right, the ante goes up. The problems are more systemic and they're more destructive long-term. When this happens, this nearsightedness takes place on a group-to-group level, it breeds divisions and rivalries against camps of people, whether it's you're from a theological camp A and I'm from theological camp B, or we look different, or we're from different uh, ethnic or racial cultures, or we talk different. I'm from New York and you're from Alabama, uh, whatever it might be. Um, but rivalries develop and prejudices and racism and, and, and ultimately oppression and injustice when this nearsightedness takes place on, on um, a group-to-group uh, basis like we see here in Acts chapter 6. And what we know from the scriptures is God takes it very personally. I'm going to paraphrase Matthew chapter 25, but... But Jesus said in a parable in Matthew 25, look it up, Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats parable. Um, Jesus basically said, if you neglect the needs of helpless people around you, you're basically neglecting me. When you overlook the needs of people around you, you, you can do something about it and you choose not to. You, want, you overlook them, you might as well be overlooking me. And he put it this way. Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. So what we see here is that a lack of response, um, our, our unresponsive nearsightedness alienates us from our creator. So what happens is now a lack of response in mercy actually alienates you from your creator's mercy. That's the real situation. We all need God's mercy. But when we neglect one another, we cut ourselves off from the mercy of the one who can truly offer it. You want to know why mercy is so important? Why it's so important in the New Testament? Um, The Old Testament talked about widows and orphans and strangers and well, take a look at it. The New Testament authors, they, they talk about the same thing. You love Jesus? You're serious about your faith? You're taking care of orphans and widows and strangers? And I think they represent a, a, a larger group of people, as you have illustrated that, just in your examples of who's overlooked today in our own world. The reason for mercy is God is merciful, and he showed us 
what mercy is. Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. God robed himself in humanity, just like you and me, in this man, Jesus. And, and do you see Jesus served you? And you look at his life and you look at the cross. Jesus, as a substitute for you, on the cross, became your servant, your servant. He was the servant of the Lord who then served you by being your substitute. Jesus served you by entering into your brokenness. For it to be possible, like when when the Apostle Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, don't only look to your own needs, but look to the needs of others, right? If you're going to really help people, you have to enter into their brokenness. You have to see their brokenness from their perspective or you're not going to help them. You're going to stay apathetic and disconnected. To really be helpful to a hurting person, you've got to enter into their brokenness and see it from their perspective. And that's what the Christian gospel, that's what the good news means. That God became one of us, entered into our brokenness and and considered our interests above his own. Our interests being we needed to be forgiven from our sins. We needed to get off our one-way ticket to hell and to God's judgment and alienation from God forever and come into his mercy. And it happened because God, the Son, served us by becoming human. So now in his name, you serve others. Jesus served you. Now in his name, become a servant. And by doing so, Reflect. You have the joy and the privilege of reflecting the heart, the servant's heart of your Lord Jesus. We're not here to serve ourselves. We're here to serve each other. And as a body, we're here to serve this community and this world. Um, To the extent that we learn how to serve one another well, I believe God will give us opportunities to serve our community but we're not going to expand outwardly in a healthy way until we mature inwardly by being merciful to one another. I don't care how big a church gets. We have to start by being merciful to one another and then seeing ourselves as a unit uh, that then goes out in mercy to the world around us. You're merciful to me and I'm merciful to you. And then together, once, once we see one another and regard one another's needs, now together we go out. And who knows whom God will bring to a knowledge of Jesus Christ? Who knows whom God will bring into his church, whether it's ours, Deep Run Church, or other churches around here, as we become obedient to his call for mercy? So in order to grow well outwardly, we really have to mature inwardly in your neighborhood. Amongst your relatives, you you begin to ask God for his wisdom. You say, Holy Spirit of God, give me the wisdom to respond to this problem with the servant's heart of Jesus Christ. Give me the wisdom and the faith to be merciful and to, to look to others' interests more than I look to my own interests. And I believe as we do that, God is going to make our merciful behavior 
a witness to our community and to our world. So let's pray. We ask our, on us just how much uh, you were driven by love and humility to serve us. Thank you for becoming our servant. And may we in your name serve one another and practice mercy within these walls and in our community groups and in our relationships and on our ministry teams. And I pray, Father, that there would be no true, honest need in this room uh, that would go unmet uh, by our own church. And, Father, prepare us and strengthen us and, and educate us uh, so that we can be an agent of mercy in this community. For your sake, Lord Jesus, and in your name. Amen.